What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. This is Ideation Collective. I'm Jess, and today on the show we've got Clay Olson, founder of Charity Fight the New Drug. There have been plenty of opportunities in my own life, and I think others can relate to this, where other opportunities, more lucrative opportunities, have come my way, but they didn't fit in line with exactly kind of the, the mission and the vision and the and the passion that I have, and kind of the the roadmap that I want in my own life. And even though uh, perhaps. Uh, financially, I'm in a position where I have, you know, let go of some of those, uh, you know, more lucrative opportunities. I know that the long haul is going to actually be more kind of rewarding and possibly even financially rewarding um, down the path. And 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 uh, signs of that have already started to kind of come to fruition. So I'm a firm believer. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series, where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. We ask them what lessons they've learned about innovation, overcoming failures, and what advice they'd have for the rest of us on achieving levels of mastery. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations for members of the collective you can't get anywhere else. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website. It's www.icollective.co slash free. Again, icollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founder started called Child Rescue that works to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more, please come to the Child Rescue category on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue, with no spaces. Again, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's start the interview. Today on the show, we've got Clay Olson, founder of Charity Fight the New Drug. Clay, thanks for being on the show. I uh, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So, Clay, you, you built a multi-million dollar advertising agency. You started trying to figure out how to help the world with, with Fight the New Drug and, and the way that pornography is breaking down the family and hurting society and everything. And uh, it takes over your life and you go charity full time. Now you got celebrities endorsing you, Facebook pages with hundreds of thousands of likes, presenting to hundreds of thousands of kids across America. Um, give, it, give us some of the highlights of, of what this, uh, this journey has been like. Oh, it's, it's been... Uh it's been a journey. It's been an incredible journey. Um, I would have, in a, never in a million years, would I have guessed that I would be doing what I am now doing. You know, my my vision for my life was to to build this creative agency and kind of grow it and make a lot of money and you know swim in the creative world and and just kind of uh, you know make a name for myself in that industry. And um, and that has not been the reality it, uh, because of this kind of passion that was that stemmed from 
uh, a very personal experience in my family where my cousin uh, struggled uh, to, uh, so much uh, uh, with an addiction to pornography that it actually ended up um, leading him to actions that took him to prison. And so that was obviously kind of a stick, like a stick of dynamite in my family, and it was really uh, eye-opening, I guess you could say. And when I was older and, and uh, had a little bit more foundation of understanding um, I kind of started to do my own research as to what what was behind that, and and it kind of s- stirred in me this 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 passion uh, to to help individuals understand what's really going on, and so that that led me down this course, and uh, um, I wouldn't have uh, you know I, I didn't know if people would gravitate to it um, like they have. I didn't know if it would be um, quite if we'd be able to grow it to the extent that I hoped we could. In fact, it's exceeded my expectations as well as the other co-founders' expectations. We kind of thought, who's going to want to jump on board with such a taboo and difficult topic? But we knew that it was critical and important and, and, and essential to so many. And so we jumped in uh, naively, and, uh, uh, which I, I think is actually a, a, a healthy dose of naivety is one of my strongest suits. <laughs> I, I, and we can talk about that more later. But, but uh, anyway, we jumped in, and, and it has grown and the movement has exceeded our expectations with, again, celebrity endorsements, speaking to hundreds of thousands. We've, we've broken a million on our Facebook um, uh, page as far as followers and, and you know, hundreds of thousands of followers on other social networks. And so um, it really is kind of taking a, a life of its own, and it's really starting to change the conversation and thus changing the world. And that's, we couldn't be more proud of where we are, but we're nowhere near our end goal. Okay. And we're, we're going to talk a bunch about... Um, you know, taking an issue that people have different opinions about and and what I think is genius about your guys' tack, we've talked about this before, you know, you, you look at the anti-smoking groups, you know, when they made it a morality issue for 50, 80 years, they didn't make any progress. All of a sudden they go into the science and now you hardly smoke anywhere in America, right? Yeah. And I think you guys are genius in the way that you show what's chemically happening in the brain and and, and the effects of from a science perspective and, and yeah. got which, great traction. Which is... Uh, kind of uh, the linchpin to our entire approach. Uh, we, we knew from the very get-go that this, this needed to be addressed um, on a public health level, right? This needed to be framed in the public health dialogue. And, and uh, so we take you know, science, facts, and personal accounts, and that's how we frame this entire thing. And, and we've been able to get uh, open doors that were previously closed forever on this issue and, and really kind of gain traction where uh, others uh, struggled because they took it on a moral approach uh, yeah. or a religious approach. Sure. Well, and, and it's actually one of the things, you know, on the show we're always telling people, you know, I got this theory that, you know, business or growing an organization is kind of three main things. It's uh, have something legitimately awesome, figure out how to get people to want it from you, and then just the human elements of both ourselves and the staff and the vendors and everybody that's involved in those, in those two systems. Um, I think for today, though, we're going we're gonna to rearrange the order because – I feel like you guys are masters on getting people to getting pe- getting people to engage on an issue that others have have struggled with, and then we'll get around to the uh, get around to the innovating and the product and, and and partially because of the other conversation we had. You know, we're big fans of Content Marketing Institute and those guys, and they talk about build an audience first, and uh, and you guys obviously did that. So just I think following your own story, we'll start there. But um, you know, so taking for granted that. Listeners today who are, whether it's a creative project or whether they're building a company, they have something awesome. This idea of the principles of getting it out. I mean, you started in the advertising agency world, uh, the creative world, 
and, and you brought those skill sets with you here. Um, can we can we start there though? When you were in the in the um, creative agency world, how did you find your clients? What did you what did you do to get the work? You know, obviously turning into millions of dollars a year. Well, yeah. So I started the creative agency. I actually started as a film company first, and then it kind of evolved, and we we brought in designers and other things. Uh, and, you know, I had to tell just a, a simple story. You know, we, we embodied the, the principle of fake it till you make it. I mean, that, that was us. I remember, uh, you know, one day, and this is very, very early on, we had nothing as far as, like, major clientele to point to or major projects that we had done. And we were just a few people, but we had just kind of signed on this new office and, and, we, and a new client that, that was representing, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of uh, work, which you know, blew our minds. We had never seen any, that kind of money how, how ever. How old are you at the time? I was, I was 23 or 24. And so, um, so he's coming to, to, to come to our office and he asked where we worked and we're like, uh, we work here, but literally there's not a single desk in the place. This is an empty shell. We had not done anything. So we raced, we went and got a desk, raced at like midnight, put this thing together. I had my sister sit at the desk and, and hold a fake phone up to her ear. Like, it wasn't even plugged in. We had no service, but she was like, hello, can I take a call? <laughs> and so he, we, we let him in. I'm sitting there like pretending to like shoot some important video in this quote unquote green room for it was a green screen which the cameras weren't even on. And then he walks into the office uh, where he met with one of my designers, one of our designers, and, uh, and, and, and you know, struck a deal. And we didn't land the job, of course. <laughs> I, I wish my story had a positive ending. But we didn't land it. But the point was we, we really kind of faked it until you make it. And I think that's an important principle, not to the point where you're deceptive or manipulative, but to the point where you're like, like we're capable. And a lot of people feel that they are capable. They're capable of great Things and 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 sometimes it takes you know kind of the, pers- you know developing kind of the the persona of of greatness in order to kind of convince others that you 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 are legitimate and capable of, of such a project. You know, it's an interesting thing because it, it obviously borders on insincerity, yeah. right? And so there's this fine line of dressing the part versus versus misleading people. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. And, and I think it's a critical thing. It, certainly, you know, my, my background in, you know, whether it's sales or whether it's starting these businesses, most of which were failures, but um, I, I definitely had to walk that line, right? Yeah, and, and I, think, I think there's a difference between kind of like de- deceiving an individual on the work itself and, and what your ability is versus like, kind of like, uh, you know, just making it look like we were, you know, an organization that uh, – that, was a legitimate institution in an organization like that we had an office and a receptionist and whatnot and we just kind of like wanted to kind of because we were we were moving in that direction we wanted to kind of like not make them think that we were just something in our in the basement of our garage yeah, right well and it's interesting too because we know people come with biases right like if you legitimately believed you could do the work but you knew that the empty office is going to um going to give him questions of this doesn't fit with my perception of the people who could do the work like sometimes you need to help people like not let their biases get in the way of something that could actually be service to them yeah and i will say that the best way to get clients is through your work it's, it's, it's through the, the content that you develop. It's not about putting on a show or kind of pretending that some office is yours when it's really not or showing up in a rented car that's like, you know, much more you know, luxurious than you would ag- ever drive. I mean, if you saw my car, you'd realize that I, I embrace, you know, the, the, uh, 
not luxurious uh, stuff. But my point is that the best way to get your work is through your work, is through the work itself. Um, Every client that we landed um, wanted. So tell us a successful one. Yeah. Tell us when you landed. Well, you know, there were several clients that we landed, some of which uh, ended up being highly, highly profitable. One um, based out of New York City, um, um, you know, called Viridian Energy, and, and they did, uh, you know, solar system, uh, solar panels all over uh, the East Coast area, and, and that ended up being millions of dollars worth of work for us over time, and, uh, and they... Um, bought into our story and who we were as an organization based off of the, the work that we had uh, been able to achieve with other clients before them. And so you kind of are always on this kind of ladder or, or, or staircase moving up, kind of saying leverage the, the work you're doing now for the next time. And here's another principle that, that I, I really believed in. You know, clients would have a certain budget. And, and, you know, many individuals working on creative projects will think, well, that's then this is all they get for that budget. This is this is what they get. And, and they're not they're not paying for more. Therefore, they're not going to get more. But that actually hurts you. Um, also, that mentality hurts you as well. My mentality was I want to do as the best work I can feasibly do, because I know that the, it's just not about. Uh, appeasing and satisfying this particular client, but it's really about building my own portfolio and my company's portfolio to land the next job. And if I'm doing mediocre work because that's all they're paying for, I'm actually shooting myself in the foot for the next guy and the next guy. And so I would constantly strive to exceed expectations and push the boundaries, giving the, 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 real, the real limitations that were before me, but try to push those expectations and push those boundaries so that I can then leverage that for the next. And it was, it was constant. We, you know, I started out doing wedding videos. Um, that's, that's my beginning. And then I was doing, you know, I was, I was flying to the Amazon to do documentaries for companies and I was, I was going overseas and I was, I was producing. Yeah, I was, yeah, it it just, you know, that was my next project. No, um, no, it kind of evolved. I started doing some commercial work and then it built up to other things and other things. And so, um, you know, yeah, I, I think leveraging kind of staying true to your craft and, and, and doing the best work that you can do, um, you'll never go wrong taking that approach. Uh, and, and that's the best way. I, I told you that earlier story of me um, you know, faking it till you make it, but the reality is that was a failure. Had we had the work, we, we didn't land that job. Had we had the work to back us up at that time that met his standard and what he was looking for, we would have landed it. And we didn't. We were too young. We were too early. And we later uh, were able to get... Uh, um, uh, actually land uh, that job later on and then others. So, You know, I want, I want to highlight something you brought up. You know, um, I was excited to talk to you today because of, I had, you know, because of this other great interview I was telling you about with, with um, Pat Crowley from Chapool, the, the protein bar with the cricket yes. powder, and how he had to overcome all sorts of Western consumer bias about eating insects and, and like, you know, how do you beat that? And he talks about his heroes, the guys from the world of sushi that figured out how to overcome that. And, uh, but the, the thing that's not on that interview is the like 15 minute conversation Pat and I had afterwards about the unfair advantage of generosity as a, as a business tool. And, and like, he's a guy that really embodies that. I think you do too. Uh, and, but I feel like in your story right there, you're describing this thing of like, um, oh, well, the customer's only paying for this, so we're only going to do this. Versus, like, um, the nature of being more generous, of giving, like, instead of, like, only giving them what they pay for, giving them as much as you can give them, given what they paid for. Yes. 
instead of only what they deserve, right? And but like and how all the all the benefits of like what that must feel like for the client, what that does for your portfolio, and the like. It's a total advantages win. of generosity it, it, is yeah. what I heard at least. Yeah, it's a total win for both sides of the equation, and and most people don't get that. They're kind of like what's in it for me mentality. And in business, if you kind of make it more like seeking the win win, you're going to go far. Uh, you know, you're going to achieve far more through that mentality and that generous man. In fact, there's there's a. a um, a lot of uh, there's kind of a movement toward that genera- kind of generosity through business. You know, Blake Mikowski from Tom Shoes wrote a book called uh, "Build Something That Matters," <clears throat> and uh, and in that he kind of talks about a culture of generosity and how that actually it, 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 you know can be measured in in his case for for more profits. He's actually more profitable through his approach of generosity than kind of just eating it. And, and most people kind of look at it through the short-term lens of, well, then I, you know, that, that, that's, I'm giving more of my time, therefore they should pay, and they're blah, blah, blah. But in reality, uh, the long-term is that that culture permeates success, and you're going to be more successful down, uh, in the long run. Well, and you, you look at successful people in general and the studies about, um, like, one of the greatest predictors of whether somebody's going to be successful or not doesn't have to do with their talent. It has to do with their ability to ha- to have delayed gratification is like just a huge predictor of success. How how good is this person at delayed gratification? Because you know, entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship, charity, right? It's the same thing. I lump it together. Uh, for me, it feels like an endurance sport. It is, don't you think? Yeah, it is. You're playing the long game, right? And 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 the thing is, like, uh, 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 there have been plenty of opportunities in my own life, and I think others can relate to this where other opportunities, more lucrative opportunities, have come my way. But they didn't fit in line with exactly kind of the, the mission and the vision and the, and the passion that I have and kind of the, the roadmap that I want for my own life. And even though uh, perhaps uh, financially I'm in a position where I have you know, let go of some of those uh, you know, more lucrative opportunities, I know that the long haul is going to actually be more kind of rewarding and possibly even financially rewarding um, down the path. And, and, and uh, signs of that have already started to kind of come to fruition. So I'm a firm believer in that. Thinking about this idea of how do you get the word out, you know, once you have something awesome, how do you get people to want it from you, right? Let's, let's talk about fight. Let's talk about fight the new drug. Um, you've got an issue that uh, Comedy Central thinks is funny, Right, that it's popular culture to make jokes about and and think is no big deal. Like the idea of being cool and fighting against pornography, like these are not natural. They don't go well together. They haven't in the past, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so we've got a lot of people who who listen to the show who uh, are doing exciting things, and we've got other people who consider themselves in boring businesses, and some of them that are, you know, blatantly uncool to begin with. Yeah. There's a lot of people that want to know how to invent cool, and I, you know. You got the red T-shirt on today. We're gonna, if you haven't seen uh, Clay's uh, "Fight the New Drugs" red T-shirt, says "Porn Kills Love." We're gonna have it posted on his page on on ideationcollective.com. Just come see Clay's page, and you can buy it from there yeah. from his site. But I see the shirt all over the place. When you got guys <laughs> like Terry Crews, and everybody thinks about him as the you know the NFL player who became the Old Spice guy, and I think of him as a t- Terry Tate office linebacker. Yeah. Right? Can't people people can't be skipping over that. Yeah. You get all these people. Wearing the shirt and, and coming out publicly about it and literally in the years you've been doing this, like actually shifting an industry to now the cool kids can 
be against pornography. Tell us about this messaging and, and how you've done some of that. Yeah, and I'll try to be brief. In the beginning, we, we did a survey, and we actually uh, asked youth um, how they would describe, in one word, um, porn culture and anti-porn. And they described porn culture as being, um, you know, uh, non-judgmental, um, um, cool, hip, um, uh, you know, current, and, uh, you know, just kind of accepting. And then they it described anti-porn as being old, outdated, boring. And so, of course, we were up against an incredibly difficult kind of uphill battle. Perception yeah, because, uh, the, you know, who we were trying to reach thought that we were old, outdated, boring, you know, prudes and other things. Because that's how the anti-pornography industry had, had kind of defined itself for so many generations. We were trying to come in and disrupt that, redefine what it means to be anti-porn, or redefine what it means to be kind of uh, pursuing real love and re- rejecting its hollow counterfeit. Okay. So this is what I think everybody needs to hear from you is that I, I feel like at least, you know, I've got so many friends that follow you guys and I, I see you guys. Obviously, I'd heard about you for years before we actually met. Um, I feel like this is magic that all sorts of people who want to make the world better should learn from is us as the leader, us as the founder who are starting something. We might be anti this or anti that or whatever. And when you came in and you were for love, like – such a genius reframe, yeah. uh, I uh, you know for love backed up by science. Anyways, yes, that's what it feels like to me. Maybe no, no, that's like, no, no. It, that's exactly how we framed this. We knew that you can't fight negative with negative. It's not just a wagging your approach, saying like you know don't do this because I mean it's, people are sick of that kind of an approach and it doesn't work. You know we've seen case study after case study of negative approaches to something that's negative. It, it, you know ends up uh, you're speaking to a brick wall. But if you can fight negativity with positivity, that's where the, the that's where you know magic happens. Socrates said that the secret to Change isn't in uh, in you know fighting the old, but in building the new. And so we had to define what is the new. What is the new that we're fighting for? What are we pursuing? What are, what's at stake here if we don't uh, you know listen to this message or accept or adopt this message? And it boiled down to love. And once we kind of wrapped our brain around that and recognized that that was actually the the framing. Uh, of of this movement to 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 be for love, and to be uh, you know we are we are pro sex, uh, anti porn. You know, porn is the antithesis of love. And what and and if we can kind of clearly define that for individuals and and back it up by science and research and not just be an opinion. So in fact, let's give me give me a couple of science points because when you told me about. Going to junior highs and going to high schools, yeah. like insecure kids who are not about to stick their neck out for something that's not cool. And by the end of assembly, you've got masses of kids raising their hands saying they're, they're with you. Yeah. Help me through. Let's start with this. Give me the mini sales pitch of how you get insecure junior high kids to stick their hand up and get, say, I'm, you know, I'm for love. I'm a guest point. Well, yeah. So, I mean, we, we discuss, <clears throat> we discuss how, how pornography 
um, is similar to other drugs in the way that it responds in the brain, right? How the brain, more research from Valerie Voon in Cambridge University and Dr. Simon Kuhn in, 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 uh, in Germany, how, how the brain is actually being rewired and altered based off of the mass consumption of pornography. So we can actually point to neurological studies that are showing the, the impact it's having. So we can talk about the brain. We can talk about the heart, our ability to connect and love and, and relate to others and, our, and how it's impacting the world. So we talk about brain, heart, and world. But here's the thing. Um, just again, that's negative, 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 how it's impacting, impacting. But we need to talk about what we're fighting for. So we talk about love. Um, and even though, you know, youth, uh, you know, maybe aren't in, the, you know, f- haven't found the romance of their life, they understand and, and relate ex- on a very profound, um, you know, innate core level uh, what love is and their desire for it. And so we talk about how, you know, there have been plenty of studies. I can talk briefly about how it's impacting love particularly. Um, Norman Deutsch and many others have talked about this concept of a disordered arousal template. We all have an arousal template, and we are born with it, and we all have kind of different preferences and interests. Now you, are you talking about the guy who wrote The Brain That Changes Itself? Yes. Yeah, Norman okay. Deutsch. Love that book. We'll put a link to it on the page. Okay, yeah. Um, so he talks about this disordered arousal template. Now, individuals that consume a lot of material, and his book actually refers to this, like what we consume, what we what we um, consume on a visual level, what we consume, uh, media and everything, actually shape our interests and, des- and desires. And that's been proven. And in fact, he says that it's so... Um, it, it changes those interests and desires on such a core level that it actually rewires our brain on a biological level so that our interests become biologically wired into us. And, and we, this is backed up by the thousands of emails that we get from youth talking about how it's actually shaped their sexual templates. They don't use that term. But how it shaped their interests to be more violent, more aggressive, or more... Um, accepting of, of uh, non-consensual sex and violence against women. And these are coming from both male and females. And so... We're seeing that. So it's impacting uh, what we love. It's also impacting how much we love. And a study by Anna Bridges and Raymond Bergner from the University of Illinois in Arkansas did a study where they actually, in, uh, they actually analyzed two groups of individuals. One group they showed pornography to on a regular basis, and the other group was their healthy volunteer base. And they didn't show that to them. And the, the individuals that were consuming pornography on a regular basis all across the board reported a significant decrease in satisfaction in their real-life relationships. Again, it's impacting what we love and then how much we love. And then it's actually also impacting our ability to express love. A study by the... uh, by the uh, United States Health and Wellness Association, found that in 1992, pre-internet, you know, uh, found that five percent of uh, males ages eight to tw- uh, eight to 59 were experiencing some level of sexual dysfunction, uh, namely erectile dysfunction. In 2012, a Swiss study was done, and they found that 30 percent of men ages uh, 18 to 25. So they cut the age in half. We're dealing with some level of sexual dysfunction. And then in 2014, a Canadian study was done, and they found that 53.5% of males ages 16 to 21 were experiencing some level of sexual dysfunction. So it's actually impacting also our ability to express love. How much, what we love, how much we love, and our ability to express love. And, and we talk about all that. Um, uh, in varying degrees, obviously with age-appropriate lingo, we don't talk about erectile dysfunction with, with the youth, but, but we talk about that, and it really kind of gives them a comprehension, a, you know, kind of a, an overview of what this is doing. And, and, and Anyway, go ahead. Well, my first issue is, how are we going to get you excited about the subject? Because I think you need to bring some enthusiasm. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. Okay, 
But your enthusiasm is contagious. I remember hearing you speak at that conference before we met, and like you, nobody was checking their iPhones. Like everybody is listening to you because it's like it's clearly personal for you. And I think all founders, anybody building something, they need to get to that level, right? You like look at you spouting this, these numbers and these stats, right? Um, my my question though, because because I know we could fill up a whole other hour with the stats, because you you have paid the price. It's not just rhetoric. You know you know the science, right? Um, but translating, because, you know, facts and scare tactics do not create long-term yeah. change, right? Uh, and, and what I feel like is so many people want young people to think their product, their business is cool. And you guys have done something that didn't start at zero. Like, you guys were behind the eight ball, and you've, you've passed zero and gone on the positive side. Um, can you talk about these stats and these things and the actual, like, process of, you talk about this, you get people to raise hands, some do, some don't, yeah, and you yeah. go to the next step. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah, throughout the process of, of discussing the, 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 the within the assembly, throughout the process of talking about the, the harmful effects of pornography, you know, people are kind of maybe questioning. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Oh, interesting. You know, um, you know, maybe that should make me concerned about my behaviors or interests or whatever. But really, it boils down to this this idea. Kind of, we conclude and we kind of are, are setting this up throughout the whole process. We're actually like pointing at it and hinting toward it. This idea of of, of, of movement and, and for love and change. And how this is impacting us long term, and how we can kind of, and kind of what the what tomorrow looks like, and and how we can you know run toward that, and how they are the hero in that story, how those that are listening are the hero in the story of social change. Um, it's not some organization or some founder leading the charge. It's it's actually it's actually the audience, and uh, and so. But that social proof, like when you told me about, do, do, do you have them raise their hands like three times? Yes. The social proof of seeing the other kid be brave. Yes. Now, when they've got the second chance, and they, if they do feel that way, they don't have to go first. To, like, yeah. So, so yeah. So, at, at the end of the brain section, we talk about like, well, how, for how many of you that enough? That alone is enough for you to say, "Not cool. I don't want that in my life. I want something better." And we ask them to raise their hand, and you know, we get a whole bunch uh, right off the bat, but not everybody. Everyone, because some people are like, "Eh, you know, big deal." Like a lot of things are addictive, and uh, I'm I'm fine. So then we go to the relationship section, the love section, and we talk about that. And for how many of you, that's enough for you to say, you know, not cool. I don't want that in my life. I want something better. And we get a lot more hands. And by the end wait, of the wait. social section. On that one, what percentage is the young women versus the young men? Yeah, at that point, we, we have a lot of young women raise their hand at that point. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're just like, oh, my gosh, not on my watch, right? Not going to happen. I'm not cool with that. And then the social section, the section that most people don't recognize, the connection between some very dark sides of our, of our culture, like sex trafficking and other, and the connection between the pornography industry and those industries and how a lot of what we see on camera is actually a, a you know, f- fake and a lie. And, and many of those women are forced into doing what they, you know, into what we perceive as a career choice. So um, that, you know, gets people. And so I say at the end of it, I'm like, so, okay, for now, ha- now, after learning about the brain, the heart, and now the world, for how many of you, that's enough for you to say, not cool, I don't want that in my life, I want something better. And, th- and then we get almost, it, it looks as if it's unanimous, the entire group and audience are on board, we have them sign a fighter pledge, we talk about love, we talk well, about the, the movement. The, the, the pledge talks about kind of what it means to be a fighter, like I am bold, I am, I am understanding, I, you know, I am a true lover. Uh, I, I avoid the hollow counterfeit of pornography. Um, I, you know, I'm a rebel. I don't, I don't follow the status quo. I do what's right be, because it's right. And, and you know, talks about all that. And I have them read it. 
and, and get on board and get and, and it's it's amazing to see the the shift and the change in the attitudes and perceptions of the the, the audiences that we speak to. Okay. So but how genius is this? Okay. I, I love that um, you know, obviously we both know a lot of people in nonprofit industry, right? Yeah. And there's a bunch of people where the founder is the hero and all the rest of us are the minions, right? It's like, you know, the Despicable Me movie, right? <laughs> yeah. They got grew and then all of us, right? Yeah. Um, and those are never as exciting. Like, when, like, I know all these people who follow you guys around that self-identify as a fighter. Yes. Right? Like, yes. they've got this label and it's like, they don't consider themselves like Clay's followers. Like, no. this is their movement. Yeah, some of them don't There's, even, most of them don't know who I am and that's fine. But you have... But I think it's so genius of, um, from a marketing perspective, like if we get totally cynical here, right? Uh, from a marketing perspective, getting people to identify as, I'm that kind of person, and it happens to be associated with your brand, with your organization, that ownership has so yes. much longevity, doesn't it? Well, we, when we build this, when I, you know, I really wanted to create something that, that allowed the, the uh, consumer or fighter or follower to be the hero of the story. And so what I look at, you know, Fight and Drug, we have, you know, seven employees in the other room, right? We have a few other part-timers and, and, and we're a small group in a little office. I look at us as, as a, a warehouse of content creation. And really the, the, the social change is happening through our fighters. So all I do all we do here is provide them the tools and resources to change the conversation, whether that's a video, whether that's a presentation, whether that's uh, you know, an article, uh, or whether that's some I- inspiring story. All we do is kind of then package it in a way that's cool first and informative second, um, which is our mantra, right? Cool first and informative second is kind of what we live by because if you reverse those, you've lost the youth and, and you've got to make it attractive. You've got to make it interesting and, and appealing. You know, research has existed on this subject for I don't know how long. I mean, the studies go back decades on, on you know, finding the, the harms, but it's never gotten any traction. We wanted to take that boring, peer-reviewed, you know, academic dialogue and research and put it into a package that then can resonate with in, the common individual and not only resonate with them, but inspire them to go out and open their mouths. Okay, we, like, we cannot skip over this. <clears throat> what you're talking about just makes so much sense to me. I remember, um, I don't know if you uh, have heard of Catalyst Week, uh, Amanda Slavin's organization. She partnered with Tony Shea, the, the founder of Zappos. They, they're trying to revitalize uh, northern Las Vegas, okay? They've got this amazing thing. They have, like, mini TED Talks, and they bring you in for a week. You get to stay. It's, it's, it's great if you ever get invited. But I remember the TED Talk, min, you know, I call it TED Talk, right? They, they got this talk at Catalyst Week. From somebody from Warby Parker, okay? And she talked about this idea of like, hey, there's a bunch of one-for-one products out there that, let's face it, if it wasn't doing good in the world, you, it's not that cool. Like, you, you wouldn't have bought it otherwise. So Warby Parker, we're, first and foremost, we're making the glasses that fashion magazines want to cover that you actually want to wear. Oh, and by the way, we have to be giving sight back to the blind. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Yeah. And, and like, the longevity of that is incredible. You know, like, I think about the things that at Child Rescue, we're like, blatantly trying to plagiarize you guys, right? Like, look at the shirt you're wearing right now. It's, it's current graph design. It's legitimately cool. And your logo is, like, tiny yeah. compared to what's on the shirt. You know, yeah. like, the, that conference that I first saw you speak at, I saw your posters, and you guys had, like, a great, like, legitimate fashion shoot uh, yeah. for, for, I mean, not really, but, but kind yeah, of, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's stylized. It's, 
It's legitimately, attractively put together. Oh, and by the way, we want to, you know, help you have an enjoyable relationship. Well, the reality of it is that people, you know, especially when you're de- dealing with a young audience, right, they want to be a part of the majority. They want to be part of the cool crowd. And so it was a really difficult thing to kind of recognize, well, what is, you know, how do we make anti-porn, you know, um, you know change the me- message of that? So it's not anti-porn, but rather pro-love, right? So how do we do that? And then how do we make it cool? Especially when we're talking about spouting off stats and and, and, and numbers and studies and like boring like we don't want, like no one wants to go to school again when they get on, on social media so the, so we need to make it cool and so really it was all about and again that my background kind of you know raced me here to kind of want to make cool videos inspiring you know design I've put a lot of emphasis on kind of those areas because I know how important that most nonprofits aren't able to do that or, or don't recognize the need for it. And I knew right off the bat that we had to put an enormous effort there if we're going to have any traction or any any leverage. Well, and this is why I was ex- big reason I was excited to do the interview. You know, we do this we do this series on Ideation Collective, the World Changer series by Child Rescue, right? And I feel like there's so many people that legitimately they see something they think needs changed in the world, and <clears throat> they want to change it the way they want to change it, instead of wanting to change it in terms of how the consumers and how the public want to be a part of it. And um, so often, the individual that's starting the new charity or starting the new social entrepreneurship thing, they've got a passion. They see it a certain way, and they're really disappointed when people just don't support it or they don't get the donations or they're not getting the Facebook likes. Um, And, you know, quite frankly, uh, you and I probably both had conversations with a number of individuals that are almost cynical about, about the groups like yours that get the million Facebook likes. You know, mm-hmm. ours is just, you know, our cause is just important. Why don't people care about it? But yet, they keep talking, they keep talking in the peer-reviewed, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scare you with facts, yeah. thinking that this is going to be the magnet. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and the people who really are changing the world are talking to the, con- I call them the consumers, but I don't know what we call them, the followers, the people in the movement, yeah, whatever, the, the, the public. Yeah. The, well, before, I'm saying before they're the fighters, oh, right? Yeah. The public. Um, I feel like the people that really are changing the world uh, and like the movement that I see you guys do is because you're talking to them in terms of the language they want to hear instead of just the language you want to speak. And I think that sensitivity, it's, you know, we talk about, uh, and maybe we should talk to this, about um, product market fit and, and the innovation and the getting something that people actually want and then getting them to want it from you, right? I feel like the loop between, hey, we have a theory that this messaging will work yeah. Uh, so how many people sit around a table just like this one here, they think that up, and then they stick with it for five years. They don't actually test it, yeah. see if it's working and adjust. And, and we didn't start with the messaging we now have, right? I mean, it took a while for us to find it. Um, eventually, we actually created um, a, you know, kind of a, a profile of our target market. We called him Josh, and we gave him all the stats. We, I mean, we have, we have a full like, binder of details about Josh, details that you would think that were insignificant about, like you know, what exactly what music does he listen to? Not just genre, but like what what tracks does Josh listen listen to? You know, what kind of um, uh, what kind of social media profiles does he uh, does he actively participate in? And what what uh, you know, what, what, where's he from? What is his family like? And all these things. We, whenever we kind of create something, we think, well, is the, will Josh like this? We kind of use that language. You know, is Josh going to be cool with that? Is he get, because he's the cool kid in the school, and if we can get him, we're going to get a lot of uh, of, of others to kind of gravitate towards. So, so it is about kind of catering the message and finding 
um, what is going to kind of uh, what is going to kind of resonate with the audience that you're trying to connect with. But uh, but it takes a lot of trial and error. You know, we started off in a place, and if I if I showed you some of our marketing material and kind of our messaging day one, you we wouldn't have, be having this conversation. You know, it's evolved. You, you, you iterate, you test, you, you, you listen. You listen to your audience because they are the true creatives in this whole process. Much of what we come out with, it comes from messages that we receive from our, from our audience. And we're able to kind of like encapsulate that in a maybe a, a tighter, more succinct way and then deliver it. But, but we, we get so much inspiration off of those that, uh, that follow us and we, we listen. We're constantly listening to them. Okay. What I love about this is there's, there's entire books on creating your buyer persona, right? Yeah. Most of my friends who have businesses, they pay lip service to it. They don't actually have a binder like you have a binder. So I'm really, actually really stoked to hear that you've taken it that granular and that it's a it's in the vocabulary yeah. of your team. I have every uh, new staff member like read the whole thing and then I quiz them on Josh. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, day two of them starting here. You think about destination definition, like getting where we're actually trying to go. Well, knowing where you're trying to go is pretty important in that equation. Yeah. And yet, how many of us we we generally know the directions, so we just get started. We don't actually. It's not clear. It's fuzzy. Right? Yeah. And you, I'm, so I'm excited to hear about that clarity. Um, you know, um, before, because I do want to talk about the product, and you guys, you, you had this audience, you're getting the yeah. movement, and then how do you figure out the product that's actually going to help, right? Yeah. But before we move on, um, you know, there's so many people that would like to get a million followers on Facebook, yeah. okay? And can you talk about the nitty gritty, like the boring details, what that looks like? Because, you know, when I came in here today to set up, you're sitting here with your designers and you're going through the Instagram feed and you guys are saying, see this one, this is good, but we just don't want to be a one-trick pony and we want to stay relevant. And like it was, there was a significant granularity. It wasn't a, oh, you do something cool. No, we, we put a lot of emphasis, obviously, into um, our content and, and, and what we put out there. And we're constantly reviewing it and analyzing it. And, you know, we'll, we'll follow a thread for a while. When you say constantly, are we talking monthly, weekly, daily? What, uh, what's the you know, at like? least weekly. And I'll sit down with my, my content guys, my designers, and we'll sit down and we'll kind of look at uh, uh, what we're doing. And we'll, uh, you know, we'll come up with ideas and say, like, let's try this. Where do you get your inspiration? Who, who, who do you look at? What do you, where do you guys get your inspiration for what's next? You know, we, we uh, pull from a, a lot of different places as far as uh, inspiration goes. And for different reasons, we'll, we'll look at uh, for our merchandise. We we often look at Sevenly and what they're doing. Uh, you know, Dale Parcher's uh, his company, and uh, we've been inspired by not only their design but also the the way that they kind of um, deliver a, a kind of a walking billboard. It's not just about you know a, a logo. You don't see much of most of our merchandise doesn't even you know we don't have our logo on it. It's it's about the message that they're carrying, and, and Sevenly's done a great job at that. We look at uh, groups uh, like Invisible Children, even though they're kind of um, um, in a different phase now of their organization, in their heyday, man, we looked at them. I looked at them daily and would look at kind of their approach, and, and, and uh, I was inspired by um, much of what they accomplished. And, um, uh, you know, I know that the media will remember Jason Russell as kind of the guy who kind of had a nervous breakdown, but uh, honestly, history will remember him as someone that uh, was, was a pioneer and, and an innovator in a space that, that he has changed an industry, social entrepreneurship and, and, uh, and, and charity-driven kind of uh, uh, cause-driven uh, marketing and, and movements have forever been changed based off of Invisible Children's work. Coney 2012? Yeah. You know, um, so in that vein, I, I feel like uh, 
it, it, I feel like it's a bit of a tragedy that that is the one issue that, you know, that organization, which has done a lot of good, that that, that one issue is the dominant soundbite that stayed in people's minds. Yeah. Because when I was with the consulting firm, I was over in Nigeria training the Nigerian Special Operations Command. And uh, we had uh, the highest ranking individuals from U.S. Special Operations Command for the theater there. And a certain individual came and talked to me because of child rescue and said, hey, listen, I feel like I've got higher priorities of uh, certain individuals that we need to be uh, going after. But that whole Coney 2012 crap, uh, some ki- all these senators' kids, like, uh, have totally influenced and stuff. So now I have to, like, work on this getting jo- Joseph Coney stuff. Can, can we have a conversation? <laughs> yeah. And you talk about the influence of, like, the most legit hardcore spec ops guys whose mission has changed because of a bunch of teenagers running around with posters, yeah. okay? And people, all they think about is, I constantly hear this like, oh, too bad about invisible children's blow up, or, you know, like, the, this, this sound bite that got amplified from the media that people, they're still around doing good. And those films influenced tons of lives. Oh, and I got to see it a couple years later, what it was like on the ground of legitimate policy change yeah. and priority, right? Well, these are a few... So I, I followed them from the very beginning, you know, and these were college kids that... that, that Making uh, the films. That wanted to, to, you know, change the world and make it a better place, and they used it through storytelling and creativity, uh, something that, that, you know, we have emulated here, and, and they have done an enormous amount of good. And they had the, the, the incidents, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And, uh, but I, I, I look up to them, still look up to them. I, I met Jason uh, at a conference that uh, they threw called the Fourth Estate, which is for yeah. social entrepreneurs. And, and, and no, the, uh, the, yeah. the people that know these guys are still totally inspired by them. Uh, Lindsay Hadley, who's, who's been on the show, got me introduced to Bobby Bailey, right? Yeah, Bobby. And he got me to read this book called Shantaram. Um, he's like... Hey, before I consult with you, will you just do me a favor and read this book, Shantaram? I think it gives people a real perspective of what it's like to live in that part of society, the lower part of society, and then we can talk. And, and it'll be in a 40-hour audiobook. <laughs> okay, so it took me a while. Wow. But um, it like legitimately changed my yeah. perspective on life. Um, this advice that, that Bobby Bailey gave me about the getting in touch with what it's like to be there. Yeah. And you know, we think we know what it we think we know what it's like versus and, and they made it so experiential. Do you know yes. what I mean? With oh, the films. Yeah. And then, and you guys, where you're not talking about those other people, you're talking about your neighbor, my relationship. Your world, your neighbor, your parents. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's very much in your backyard. And, and so, you know, we, we've looked up to the groups like that, groups like uh, um, To Write Love in Her Arms and several other. Which one? To Write Love, in Her, Love on Her Arms. They, they deal with kind of like depression and, uh, um, and, and they're an inspiring organization. So, you know, these groups have, have, you know, influenced me for sure. First, tell me about this uh, Right Love on Her Arms. To Right Love on Her Arms. Yeah. Uh, the organization. So they, they deal with, uh, they started out as like a, just a T-shirt. You know, it started like that. And this guy named Jamie, uh, he, he's, he started this, uh, this organization uh, based off of kind of the, the impact that it was having to write love arms. Basically kind of illustrating this idea like people, you're not alone. Kind of like, you know, a, a lot of females uh, and males were dealing with severe depression and loneliness and, you know, suicidal thoughts. And they started an organization, a movement really, it turned into a movement uh, of of kind of support and help and aid and 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 helping others recognize that like that it's up to us to write love on her arms to let her know that she's special and that she's important and that that she has people in her corner in a sense that that's the that's the 
reason for the very long name. Yeah. But uh, you know, they, they're an inspiring organization, and they, they continue to inspire me. Well, I know that you have a lot of people that come up to you and they say, Clay, how do I start a movement? Yeah. Right? Um, can you talk about that? And can you give any specifics? So let's talk about Facebook, because there's not that many people that have a million Facebook fans. Yeah. Can you talk? Can you give us any yeah. like nitty gritty Facebook tips? Yeah. So first, let me talk about Facebook. So um, Facebook, uh, you know, it, yeah. Ni- let's get into the nitty gritty. You know, first of all, um, you know, Facebook. The, the, the beauty. The beauty of Facebook is developing a community, right? And so you really want the community to be the. That's where you want conversation to occur. And so it's not just a megaphone of an organization, you know, screaming and hope, hoping people will, you know, listen. Um, you, you don't hear many people kind of. You know, liking a page that's just kind of like screaming at them. You want a discussion to be occurring, so you like want to asking be asking questions. Yeah, you want to be like? prompting discussion and dialogue, and even um, uh, you know, you know, friendly debates and and disagreements. And you want all that to thrive and exist in an organization. We we don't delete posts unless it is, unless it is like very uh, aggressively personal against a, a particular other user or 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 you know or particularly vulgar. Otherwise, we allow it to exist because it's not we, – we're trying to start a discussion. So that, that kind of started to uh, pull people more and more to, to our page because they felt like this, it's a place where they can kind of listen and discuss things. Okay, so somebody listening to this now who has been using it as a billboard or been using it as a one-way content dump. Okay. Yeah. Give it. So should we should we get on there and figure out what's a question that we think people would respond to? What are some ways that the rest of us can start to make our Facebook page more of an engagement Tool. Yeah, I mean, asking questions is a great way to do it, and then and then participating in the in the dialogue yourself mm-hmm. as the organization, getting involved. Don't just let the feed happen and say that was cool. Move on. Like ask other prompting questions, post inspiring things um, that that will will prompt questions, whether you create it or you pull it from somebody else. Um, don't just look at it as like here's a sale. Um, go go check out twenty percent off, or you know look at this new product that we're launching next month. All those can can be filtered and and and. Kind Kind of peppered throughout your social media strategy, but you want to be talking um, less about yourself and more about them, the consumer, and what interests them and what they need. And as we started to do that, we started to get more attraction and more people participating and liking the page. And then we we also do ads on the side, uh, uh, so we we dedicate uh, revenue each month to, to advertise. So it's not all 100% organic, but we have received the majority of our likes through organic efforts. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it, like I said, you, you saw me earlier today, you know, talking with my, my team, my social media team and others, uh, we're constantly reviewing what's working, what's not, what so, messages are impacting others and which ones are kind of duds. And, and I, you know, this idea of getting involved in the comments below your post, not just having the post be the post, right? Yeah. C- can you give us, so let's talk about a couple other networks. Can you give us, a, like a specific Instagram hint or a specific hint on, on another network? That does that? Just when you think about Instagram, give us a strategy where you think other people are, other people are, are dropping the ball. What, what's for the rest of us with our Instagram feeds? What's something that's worked for you guys that we could be thinking of as a principle for our Instagram feed? Well, I, you, know, you know, one thing that's pretty obvious on our feed is uh, message-driven. Uh, so we're, we're not trying to get anything out of this particular post. We're not, trying to, uh, we're not trying to get people to necessarily do something other than like, hear the message out. And so we'll, we'll have posts that are well-designed, well-thought-out, but they're just inspiring messages like people over pixels. And, and that message will kind of then inspire kind of that, that 
a, you know, kind of a, um, and again, well-designed, because you see a lot of those out there that are like poorly designed and just kind of feels it's white noise. If you really kind of like make it pop, you know, people are going to want to kind of participate and say, oh, so true. I love that. You know, and not even know necessarily who the or- originator of the post is, but they're going to be, you know, they're going to gravitate to it. But, but here's another thing. On, social, on, on Facebook particularly, our Facebook page started to explode once we started to be very focused on our blog. Um, our blog uh, generates uh, millions of hits um, to, to our website. And we, uh, on the number one dr- driver for that traffic is Facebook. And so once we started to actually put out content that, like, who cares about the organization behind it? This is important to me. This message and this dialogue and well, the way this is written and this story inspires me or makes me concerned or whatever it is. And they want to take it off of our Facebook shelf and bring it over to their Facebook shelf because it's that important to them. So it's not just about listening. It's about kind of like, oh, my goodness, my audience, my own personal family and friends or whatever need to hear this. And once we started putting a lot of energy into our blog, we started to get enormous, amount, enormous amounts of traffic on Facebook uh, uh, to our website, but also through our Facebook. Uh, we have a few posts that are 750,000 shares plus. We have one post over a million shares. We consider those one okay, million. Okay, we're going to put that post on your page here on yeah, Ideation Collective. Yeah, that's, that's one million conversations that, that were started. That's how we look at that. We look at that as like, Dialogues and discussions. One million people pushed that on their Facebook pages, which required, you know, which which instigated other discussions and dialogues to occur. And that is what we at Fight and Drug are all about: starting and hopefully changing a discussion, yeah, and, and a conversation. And you know, we're gonna have to have you back on the show because there's way too much more yeah. to talk about. But um, but let's but let, let's shift gears for a minute. Um, it, if you were going to talk about the process of once you had the audience designing this product, Fortify, and, and the way that's the way that's fixing yeah. people's lives. First of all, tell us what the product is, and and tell us what that you know the the testing and the feedback cycle looked like until you got something that has caught on the way it has. Yeah, so we we did things a little backwards. Uh, we built an audience first and foremost. We were a, a nonprofit charity. We we wanted to kind of like spread awareness. That was our our number one measuring stick, right? But as we started to do that, we were receiving. Thousands. Well, first, you know, you know, a handful, and then you know, hundreds, and then thousands, and then ten th- tens of thousands of messages, and and um, and and phone calls, and and uh, people t- reaching out to us asking for help. They're like, "We're on board. We love your message. We we love the movement, but we need help." Many of these individuals were teenagers, some as young as eight years old, actually preteens, um, asking for help, saying, "I love it, but I need help." I need help with my own penalty. Yes, I need help with my own thing. And, and again, fighting the drug, to clarify, is not a recovery group. It's not a glorified recovery group. It is social change and awareness, right? And so we, get, we got these people coming up to us and saying, can you help me? And we were like, uh, well, you know, we wanted to, we wanted to uh, be kind of uh, this social change thing. We're not really set up or, or poised to, to offer recovery assistance. So we'll, we put a list on our website of different groups that they could reach out to, all of which, by the way, um, uh, were need, required parental consent and a credit card. Hello. 
That was a Mount Everest that youth were unwilling or unable to conquer and, and climb. And so literally as a society, and we looked, we looked everywhere, uh, we were telling these kids to stay in that dark corner until, until it was much worse and, and, and they had a credit card. And then years later, come to us and we'll, we'll find a solution for you. Well, of course, that's not good enough. And so we would reach out to these organizations, many of which we're great friends with, and we look up to their work and we were saying, what can we do? And, uh, you know, they kept on coming back with like, well, you know, we're, we have to charge for our services. So bottom line is we d decided that we needed to create our own program. And we gathered a team of professionals in neuroscience, psychology, and therapy, and we created what we now call the Fortify program. And it's an online-based um, uh, video-based program for youth struggling with this as well. We also launched an adult program and it's free for youth so they can just get in uh, without kind of requiring that parental consent. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, any adult who pays for the program, that pays for a youth to get a program Yeah, so, we, so, you know, and this is, this is good for your listeners to hear as well. You know, we, we recognized that we had a few criteria that we needed to, A, we needed to come up with the, the, the best possible program. So that was getting the, the curriculum experts in the room, right? Then we needed to make sure that the model was such that it was convenient and easy to, to access. And so we developed a web application and have just launched a, web, uh, an, a mobile application as well. Um, but then in addition to that, we knew that, that there's a lot of psychology behind kind of if you don't have skin in the game, you're not going to value the service or the product. And so we knew that we couldn't ask for an actual, even if we asked for 10 cents or a penny, it, this, that was a barrier that, that youth were unable to, they didn't have a credit card. And so we knew that the money couldn't be that barrier, which it is for most, right? You, you pay for a service and you put that value on that product. Um, so we knew that we, they had to have some skin in the game. So we actually de developed where they're actually applying for the program. We have to manually accept each teen into the program um, and read their essay. And they have to actually submit an essay as to why they feel that they deserve the program or why they need it. And, and we read each one and we approve them individually. And based off of the, the donations of others and the adult program, um, we're able to offer that for free, ongoing, and, and we'll never charge teens for the program. So again, we, we, we you know, created the audience first, and then, we, um, and then we recognized the demand, just the sheer demand for a product. And uh, we have over 30,000 users in over 100 countries today, and we haven't put a single penny into advertising. So it, it's, the demand is, uh, is astronomical, and that's just in English, and we are now launching in other languages as well to, to, to really address the global issue that we're seeing on this topic. Well, it's a great story. I'm, I'm obviously uh, excited to hear the, the numbers that it's caught on at. Um, in that process, can you tell us about any mistakes? Well, we came at it like this, and it just wasn't working, and here's how we figured out it wasn't working, and here's how we pivoted. Oh, plenty of mistakes. I mean, uh, I think I think uh, entrepreneurs that are, that are are serious uh, can look back and just point to uh, you know a hundred mistakes. But it, it takes those few successes to kind of uh, leapfrog all those mistakes and, and succeed. And so with with Fortify, we made we we've made mistakes on on everything from. Uh, you know, it's all video based, and we we wanted a, you know a strong uh, product, and we went through several. We, we actually filmed full you know sessions with different actors, thinking that they were our our kind of figurehead, our host throughout the program, um, only to find out that they didn't test well, and we made mistakes with those. And so we had to when you say didn't test well, so you filmed it, you had it with the actors, 
Then you tried it on people and asked for feedback? Is that yeah, what they and like? they, didn't, they didn't like them. <laughs> and it's pretty important that they like that individual um, because that they kind of become, their, in a sense, therapist, yeah. uh, walking them through this journey of, of recovery. And so we didn't test well, so we had to like, throw away the footage. And, and, and so we started kind of looking, and we should have like, tested prior to, you know, like, here's the face, here's some... But we actually did uh, several testing after that, found an individual in L.A., flew him out, rented a studio, did all the filming. Uh, it was like four solid days. Like, we're talking like 14-hour days. Um, it was exhausting. And then we, we edited that together, and we shipped it off to our guy, and, and we made mistakes all along the way as far as like, you know, what kind of style we're looking for. But we shipped it off to our guy in Canada who did all the animations for it. And then we launched it, and we launched it um, and, and kind of had no idea, you know, what to expect. And uh, we made mistakes as far as uh, tracking certain data and, and certain, um, you know, certain things that we should have been asking and that we weren't. And, um, but, again, we, you, you resolve those things as you move on, and you kind of fix them as you move, as, as any iteration of any product, uh, um, and, and you learn from it. And, and we're constantly, right now, you, you might look at the program and think it's a polished we look at it as, as still a work in progress, and, and it will continue to be. But, but it's exciting to see it get uh, the traction it's getting. And, uh, and between Fight the New Drug, the social, cam- social awareness campaign, and Fortify, the online recovery-based uh, solution and uh, intervention, um, we were providing quite a, kind of a, a full-circle approach to individuals that are, that are concerned or, or struggling in this area in any way. And... and um, we're just getting started. Well, I love this story. And before we move on to talk about the human element of, of building an organization and entrepreneurship and everything, something that you've talked about a number of times, I just want to kind of highlight is um, there's so many people that are relying on the shoulds instead of relying on what people actually like. Well, they should like the actors we, we used first, right? Yeah. Rather than being willing to throw it all away and start over again. But something else is you talk about your editors, your designers, your people like this. So many of us, um, you know, so many people don't come from an art background. They didn't used to own an ad agency. And, and I hear comments like, well, that'd be great, but I can't, I can't afford a designer. I can't afford uh, the filmers to make our content, right? Um, and, and what I feel like coming through your message, and I'm putting words in your mouth here, I want you to give me a reaction, is Please. that they can't afford not to. Yeah. They can't afford not to have yeah. appealing design. They can't afford not to have appealing content. Yeah. Uh, I'm a firm believer in first impressions. I'm a firm believer in, 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 in hitting home runs and rather than base hits. Uh, and my, my staff will, will say that, that I use that term all the time. Like, let's not go for a base hit. Let's go for home runs. And so it requires kind of sacrifice, whether it requires kind of like becoming, you know, more scrappy and figuring out a way to make it, you know, uh, more professional. Watching yourself. Exactly. Or, 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 you know, inspiring a talented neighbor or friend to kind of donate some energy and effort to kind of make it, you know, reach that next tier. Um, you know, I'm I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in your 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 practice is only as good as your team behind it, and and uh, and you know we put a lot of energy into um, who our team is and inspiring that team to exceed you know in their own areas and uh, in their own kind of craft. I I'll tell you this: it's interesting working for a, a charity or a cause, and a lot of people in, that might be listening might relate to this. Um, there we get. 
resumes daily from people all over that are like, I want to work here. Uh, you know, please, I, please, can I work for you? I'll take out the garbages. I'll do whatever. So passionate people. And I love passionate people. Don't get me wrong. I think it requires a level of passion to, to work here. But passion is a dime a dozen. What I need is I need um, qualified. I need passionate people about their craft. I will take somebody that's more passionate about their craft than the cause because I believe that the cause, the passion for the cause will swell and grow within them as they work here. But I need somebody that's passionate about their craft over or beyond their passion for the cause. Um, because in the end, I need them to excel at, at filmmaking or writing or whatever. And, and, and to collectively, we're going to, you know, again, hit that home run. But if we just have a group of individuals, uh, you know, behind the, in our office that are just passionate people, but are not very necessarily skilled in those, in the areas that they need to be skilled in, we're going to be hitting a bunch of base hits, but we're going to be passionate about it, but we'll be hitting base hits. And I'm not interested in that. Um, the other thing I'll say is, um, that, uh, sorry, I'll pause on that. I, I, I had a thought and I don't want to let go of it. You'll have to cut that. I apologize. I'm creating more work for you right now. Um, no, I'm totally leaving this in. No, you're not. <laughs> this is hilarious. Um, okay. Quality sorry. people. Yeah. People who actually invest in the creative side. Oh, 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 oh. Um, it's also easy to uh, surround yourself with people that, that are kind of, I, I refer to them as we shoulds. You know, the, the, the we shoulds of the world. You know, it's, it's people that want to whiteboard all day and we should, we should, we should. I want to fill the room with I'll do's. You know, people that are kind of going to look at something and say, I can do that. I'm going to do that. Let me make some calls. Let me go out. Let me film that. Whatever it is. And, and, and if we can kind of fill the room with people that, that are both we shoulds and I'll do's, then we're going to succeed. But if you have a bunch of people in a boardroom kind of saying we should all do this and it's like, well, okay, you know. And, and, and so that was something I realized very early on that like fill, surround yourself with people that are competent and capable, capable of execution, not just ideas. Ideas are easy. Execution is hard. Um, anyway. Well, I think it's, I think it's a valuable message. Um, there's, it's, it's pretty easy to sit around and whine about what's not working when the people that are changing the world are the ones who are taking the bull by the horns. They're getting on Lender.com and watching the tutorials on how to do Photoshop themselves. Yeah. Or they're, they're beg, borrowing, and stealing to talk so-and-so into coming to help. Yeah. Uh, for the things that don't show up on the Excel spreadsheet but actually motivate humans, right? Yeah. Um, well, listen, uh, we always ask people on the show, um, you know, advice for child rescue and us getting the word out, right? And, and I totally, you know, plagiarized you guys. You know, you guys call your people fighters. We, called our pe- we started calling our people rescuers after we found out about that, right? Sweet. We, you know, our, our merchandise has, like, totally started dropping the – huge child rescue logo and now it's about the message so we're copying you guys already but any other like just advice about what we're working on and, and how you think child rescue could could get more people involved in wanting to help rescue kids well I, I I'm a firm believer in story and I think stories can change the world uh, Blake Mikowski the, the uh, founder of Tom's Shoes talks about the fact that like he, he one day he rec- recognized that they're not buying his shoes they're buying his story and, and that, that's an incredibly powerful thing. And, and an organization like Child Rescue that's saving uh, you know, kids in, 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 in sex trafficking and other things, you know, an, there's an enormous story to be told there. 
and individual stories of, of, of individuals that have struggled and succeeded and, and, and overcome and, and been rescued. But there's also a larger story, the, the, the contextual story of what we're fighting for as, as a human race and what we're going after. And I think that, that if we can embody as organizations more storytelling and, and more of a story, you know, you're going you're gonna to see um, individuals resonate, connect with, and then, you know, become your foot soldiers uh, in droves if we can simply uh, adhere to that one kind of principle of, of, of embodying and telling a story through our organization and through our messaging and through our marketing. Um, so Child Rescue is a perfect avenue to do that, um, to, to explore ways to to tell the story of your organization, to tell the story of those that are suffering, to tell the story of a better future that we're all fighting for. And, uh, and that's something I would fight for and I would gravitate to. That's great. Um, so thinking about entrepreneurship with your advertising agency, talk about building a movement with, with Fight the New Drug. Um, you know, there's having something awesome, getting people to want it from you. But there's that underlying thing of the human element, yeah. right? Um, when you think about uh, any examples in your life, somebody who, who really like set the example of how to treat others, are there any names that come to mind from either early in your life or early in your career that you look up to? Oh, yeah. I mean, no question. I've got, you know, I've got personal heroes in my yeah, personal yeah. life, and then I've got you know, kind of... Um, business heroes. Yeah, so personal life, I would, I would obviously have to look to my, my parents, both my mother and my father, and as well as my grandfather. These individuals embody integrity, uh, passion, um, a drive. Let's talk, let's talk about them one by one. Tell me okay. something great about each of them. So, you know, my dad is, is um, an, an attorney, um, and he has dedicated his life to, to helping others. He once told me that there's nothing um, worse uh, in, in his profession than an innocent man going to prison. He would rather have 10 guilty individuals walking the street than one innocent man going to prison or going to jail or whatever. And so he's always fought for the underdog and kind of wanted to help individuals in struggle. And, and he works so much for, uh, and doesn't get paid for most of it. And he, he's, he has such a service-driven approach to his profession. My mother is the most kind and generous and loving and kind of understanding individual I've ever known. And she's inspired me, and, and she's kind of uh, infused a level of empathy for others and the world around me that, that uh, is, is rare to see. And, and, I, and I'm grateful for that because it, it allows me to kind of look at uh, to, to, to those that are suffering and really kind of um, you know, hurt for them and want to help them. My grandfather is just one of the most inspiring men I've, I've, I could uh, I could speak about. He's he is uh, a passionate individual. He he has a conviction for his his uh, beliefs and his a conviction for uh, for what's right. And uh, and he is just a, a solid anchor in in everybody that knows him. Uh, you know, would refer to him as that in their own life. And so these individuals have uh, anchored me in in a resolve to think bigger and do more. And chase impact. Um, in fact, um, if you know, I, I, maybe I'll tell a quick little story. Um, I was in high school, and this, this, you know, I wouldn't have 
have experienced this or recognized this or, or felt these emotions had it not been for the inspiring um, individuals in my life that I referenced earlier. But uh, when I was in high school, um, I was uh, uh, involved in student government, and so we, we were trying to think of ways that we could kind of um, you know, make homecoming week a little bit more special. And we had heard of other schools uh, doing uh, this idea where they would bring in a, an old beat-up car onto the campus and paint it, spray paint it the colors of the opposing school for that you know, Friday night homecoming game. And, and so we decided to do that. We brought it in. We put it on the, uh, in, in kind of the, the, the grassy area and, uh, on the field, and we painted it the colors of the opposing school, and then we invited during lunch you know, everyone to line up and take a swat, you know, uh, just hit that thing as hard as they could. And uh, I remember I got in line. I wanted my chance, right? I, you know, I, you know, I wanted to, to hit that thing as hard as I could, and this guy in front of me was 300 pounds. Um, we called him Tiny. Most people didn't even know him by his real name, but he's just Tiny. And he's an enormous guy, and he gets that bat, and he swings, and, you know, in my memory, it was like the earth rumbled beneath me, and everyone's like, oh. And you could see Tiny's mark long after he left. Like, he, he moved on, he, he gave the bat up, and you could see his mark. You could just point to it. That, that's Tiny's mark. And I remember I got the bat. It was my turn, and I just wanted to make a dent as big as Tiny's. And, and of, of course, I split the car in half, which is the cool part of the story. No, just kidding. Um, no, I, I, I you know, swung, and I don't know what <laughs> kind of dent I made. But, but I remember shortly thereafter, it wasn't, it wasn't years later, it was shortly after, I remember thinking in my head, kind of a, a applying that to my life, and I thought, and this is at a time of my life where I was kind of thinking, what do I want to do with my life? What do I want to, what, what, what career path do I want to chase? In my senior year in high school, and and, and I remember thinking that we only get one swing. All of our mistakes, all of our ambitions, all of our triumphs, all of our energy is, is wrapped up into that one swing. And some of us are, are, uh, make dents, that, 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 um, positive dents that, that impact others uh, long after we've moved on. And, and, and sometimes they're positive and sometimes they're negative. We, can look, we talk about many people in our history like uh, you know Gandhi and Hitler and uh, you know Walt Disney and and Mother Teresa and others that we can look at and you know Steve Jobs that that have made an impact and I kind of thought to myself what kind of impact am I going to make what's my dent in my life and and that's actually shaped much of my decisions uh, from that day on as far as what I wanted to do with my life and where I wanted to go and what I wanted to dedicate my energies and time and skill sets toward I wanted to make a dent and an impact and again. That was, that was something that was infused into my childhood from my parents to do, want more, to think big, and to chase impact. And if, and if there's anything that I can pass on to my children, um, it would be those things, to, to make a difference in the world and, and, and make a dent. And I think that uh, there's, there's countless ways that we can dedicate ourselves into making a dent. And, uh, and there is no set standard way or even model um, uh, that, that uh, would limit that. It, 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 the options are endless. Find your passion, find a need, and, and hit a home run. And I think that if we can do that, you know, you know I, I look up to people that have done that, and I'm constantly working every day to try to live up to that standard of impact. And, and uh, it drives me. It, it, it fuels me. That's great. You know, um, it, as you're talking, I just think, like, you know, I like fancy cars, right? I've had some, you know, really big horsepower sports cars in the past, and it's, it's fun. You push on the gas, you get a big smile, right? <laughs> but 
the problem I, is it's I've only, never felt that feeling, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem is it's only for me, you know? And I think about what you say and, like, um, you know, my ambition, these investment firms I've had in the past and friends I know that have, you know, yachts and private airplanes and stuff. And, and uh, it's, it's fun. Like, it's legitimately fun, sure. that stuff, right? But you just saying that's, like, this reminder for me of, like, I feel like, you know, when I die and I go see the big guy in the sky, I'm going to get this question, like, hey, remember how I, like, let you know in your life that you were supposed to help those kids? How'd you do on that? <laughs> you know? So every time that I get focused on, like, the, the stuff or the, you know, the stuff that's for me, I, I, like, what you're talking about, somebody like you reminds me that, like, well, I'm not saying you can't have that stuff, but let's get this in order. Yeah. Help the kids first, and if you can get that stuff on the side, then that's fine. Yeah, too. and you and I have kind of very tangible kind of charities that we're, we're kind of you know, we have or we're working toward, and it doesn't always have to be kind of nonprofit driven, sure. charity driven. It can just be making Neighbors. an impact, being it's, a good dad. You yeah. know, they, there's that great. I don't know if you've seen this billboard just just north of the city here that says, uh, "There's um, no one loves me like my dad," and she's yeah. got this like eight year old boy's face, kind of a cool gray background. There's another one going south. I can't remember what that one says. But and it just says like by fatherhood.org or something. Yeah. And the other day when I was driving home from work, I thought I thought about that and I was like, it like I literally was like more present with my kids when I got home that day yeah. instead of just being in the room. Like I was actually trying to be present with yeah. them. I mean, perhaps, perhaps, and it could be argued that the, the largest impact we could possibly have on the uh, in our life would be the impact that we leave through our children, the impact we have on our children. So what you know. You know, not neglecting that in an effort to have an impact uh, in, in the world, making sure that that's balanced as well. And that's not an easy thing, uh, you know, especially for entrepreneurs, uh, social entrepreneurs, you know, driven entrepreneurs that want to, you know, make a name for themselves, make a lot yeah. of money, you know, change the world, whatever it may be. That oftentimes can, can be at the expense of uh, your family. Um, and if you look at the history of people that have achieved greatness, um, it, it, oftentimes they had very broken uh, homes. And so I think that the, I don't think, uh, I have a strong belief that it's not one or the other. I believe that you can achieve greatness. Uh, you, can, you can accomplish your goals. You can hit those home runs and still have a very powerful uh, impact at home and an influential one for good. Okay, super glad you brought this up. Um, your dad, your married guy, right? Um, I think about... Being driven, hyper, you know, getting hyper-focused on the home run, right? And then realizing, like, oh, I'm kind of dropping the ball at home, right? And I need to help my wife feel like, you know, help her let my actions line up with my words that she's my priority, right? For you, do you have any – do you have any tricks about keeping it in check of, like, there's – because I promise I, – I, I'm looking around here. I promise you could work till 9 p.m. every night, right? Yeah. Not see your kids. Yeah. Do you have anything that, that helps you keep it in check of, yeah. of making sure they both cross the finish line? <laughs> my, my wife is probably the biggest uh, helper there. She makes Whether sure. Whether you want to or not. <laughs> she makes sure I put priorities there. You know, I travel a lot. I speak uh, all over the country. And, um, and uh, so I'm gone uh, quite a bit. And uh, when I'm home, um, she makes sure, especially on the weekends, that, that I'm, I'm present. And it's not like I, she does it with me kicking and screaming. I, I want it. I need it. I've asked her to help me keep it in check because I'm a very driven person. I'm a very passionate individual. Hold on, you are? This is <laughs> and, and, I, and I 
and I tend to get very wrapped up and in, 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 into the projects I'm working on. You know, back when I was you know full time filmmaking, um, I would be working. You know, tw- you know, sometimes I would work like 20 hours in a day and not, you know, even not even flinch. Like I was, just, I was so driven by the creative process and getting that next that that eat things like eating and sleeping and and social life were burdens to me. I, I just wanted to immerse and so. That's part of my DNA a little bit, and so um, my wife keeps me in check, and I'm so grateful that she does. So, do you do things like I don't check email when I'm with the family? Do you do any like? What, are there yeah. any like actual yeah. tips? Yeah. So, so um, we we actually put the phones you know down when we're out with uh, when we're with the family. If we go out to eat, a lot of times I'll leave the phone the phone at home so that it's not even a temptation for me. But uh, um, it, it really stems from. <clears throat> from my uh, from my phone and access to to email and and and, and uh, text messaging, but at nights you know we're good about it because we, we'll put the kids down and she's a, an interior designer, a very successful one as well. And so um, you know there's times where just the demand of, of our professions require us to to work late. But what we'll do is I'll come home at a reasonable hour. We'll put the kids down. We'll we'll have fun. We'll play. We'll go out to the store do something fun put them down and then she and I will get back on the on the computers and, and work if necessary um, and we try to limit that as well in fact Friday nights are, are completely off limits we cannot work on Friday nights as date night and we make sure that we adhere to that so you know it's so great though like by making it a routine right instead of deciding are we going to go out tonight are we going to go out this Friday or not yeah like having it be the default yeah. of this time together um yeah. Okay, uh, thinking about another subject we talked about for a minute earlier, um, you know, as entrepreneurs, it seems like in, in almost any situation, we could either use a little more confidence or a little more humility. <laughs> when you think about, you know, the human element when it comes to you and, and being a leader and dealing with insecurities and then dealing with, you know, being fancy because there's rooms full of people that are here to see me. And do you have any things that like either, well, let's, let's start with, what about confidence? The self-doubt thing that we all have. Oh my gosh! What do you? And, and it's he, easy for people to kind of look at uh, um, maybe people that they perceive to be very successful, um, um, and kind of just think in their head that they've got it all figured out. They've got it. They they've got it all figured out, and uh, and the reality is, this ninety percent of them are still figuring it out, and and actually deal with. Massive amounts of insecurity, or you know, are people going to like me? Are they are they are they going to follow me? Are they going to listen? Are they are, you know are they going to think I'm a terrible speaker? Are they going to um, you know are they going to find out that I really am not as as um, you know as as you know well put together as my social feed would indicate, um, or that I'm perhaps not as well versed in these areas that I want people to think I'm very competent in. It's easy for entrepreneurs to just want, they want their investors, they want their donors and their staff and their, the people that follow them to look at them as the guy with all the answers and the guy that knows how to do it all. And the reality is, is that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not speaking alone here, but I'm for sure not that guy and I don't even know one. You know, most everybody kind of like has areas that they're more you know, more capable in, and others that they're not. And recognizing that, and 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 not being you know being vulnerable to to those, and kind of recognizing this is not my area of expertise. And I think that a level of vulnerability and humility is very healthy um, to um, to 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 operating in any business. Is you know, 
um, letting people kind of see that inner any inner version of yourself that's uh, that that has flaws and that that, that but but also has uh, a lot of incredible talent in certain areas. Recognize what you're good at and recognize what you're not, and, and focus on what you're good, and then outsource what you're not, and um, and don't try to do it all. No, but there, there's science that's backing up what you say. You know, when we when you learn about mirror neurons and you learn about um, you know why we see somebody else you know get hurt on a YouTube video and we flinch, right? Yeah. Um, and what you're talking about this idea of like, um, you know, let's say if you know. If you believe like me that humans are inherently created equal, okay, yeah. right? And but maybe I'm feeling the teeter totter. Is I'm on the kids' playground teeter totter. I'm on the down and I'm looking up at the yeah. other people, right? Of of like being honest about there are things I'm good at, there's things I'm not good at, and then it gives permission for everyone else around you to do the same thing. To mm-hmm. be honest, that they actually are good at some things and that they are not good at some things, and it doesn't make them more or less of a valuable human. Yeah, because they happen to have this skill set, or ha- they happen to have worked at this, or not. Is that? Am I going anywhere in the same direction as you? No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that it, um, I think that recognizing that we all have flaws, and recognizing even that your heroes and those that you look up to, and those that you aspire to be more like, have flaws. Um, it makes you feel a little bit more more comfortable in your own skin, and and uh, kind of puts a little bit of pressure off of of. You know, having to be perfect, um, especially if you're trying to be a CEO of a company and sure. you know, run it or, or start a new venture or whatnot. Like, yeah. yeah, it's okay. You're not perfect, and it's okay to ask for help, and it's okay to uh, learn from your mistakes and admit that you made a mistake. I've yeah. made many, and uh, and we learn and we and we pivot and we adjust. You know, um, I'm glad you brought that up. I think about you know a couple of my business heroes. Uh, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, right? Start the giving pledge to make it cool for billionaires to give all their money away, right? But you look at it, uh, Bill Gates, and um, whether you like Microsoft or not, I'm a Mac guy, okay? The dude is, is a dropout, right? Yeah. He didn't he didn't go from finishing at Harvard to spending his time at Goldman Sachs to climbing the corporate ladder. Like, he wasn't qualified to be a CEO when he became the CEO of Microsoft, you know? And now look at the good he's doing in the world yeah. with that money he made, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, I really identify with what you're saying there. Uh, what about the other direction? What about the um, the reality checks of, you know, maybe maybe uh, maybe I believe my own press clippings. Maybe I think I'm a big deal. Uh, any any like tips yeah. or tricks to keep yourself in check or to get back in check when you realize you're not? Yeah, I've seen that happen a lot of times where people kind of like get drawn into the celebrity of 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 their own um, you know endeavors. I think constantly recognizing and giving praise to those that are helping sustain the very foundation upon which you stand, right? Um, like as a habit. As a habit. I think one thing that is lacking in, in our world is praise. Praising uh, you know, staff, praising individuals for good ideas, for, for well-executed um, projects, um, and praising uh, and, and giving credit to, to those that... Uh, that that are really making the change, which are the fighters and the people that are, you know, the movement leaders, and 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 that kind of puts you back into this kind of like more um, uh, governance role, kind of like helping everything move smoothly and kind of execute well. But you're not necessarily this this um, this individual that is the end all say all, uh, uh, you know, 
uh, yeah, uh, kind of uh, the the it thing that's that's going to make or break the the effort or the organization. Like, make sure that uh, that you recognize the, that what brought you there, what got you there. And I'm not saying that that individuals should should diminish their own skill sets because there's plenty of CEOs that that are geniuses and that that you know deserve quite a bit of um, uh, recognition for their accomplishments. But but if the good CEOs, the the, the ones that, that that are recognized for that, if you ask them, you know how they got there, they'll often then refer and 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 kind of deflect much of the the praise to others that that were very involved and participatory in their in their ascent. Well, l- look at this. You know, one of the best selling business books of our time, good to great, Jim Collins. Right. I remember speaking to Brian Bagley, his head researcher. Right. They did twenty eight thousand hours of research. For that book, I believe, right? And they talk about that level five leader, right? They say the level four leader, you know, the tyrant with a thousand helpers. When things go wrong, they look out the window of what they're, you know, and they think about what their people are doing wrong. When things go right, they look in the mirror and pat themselves on the back. And then what he calls the level five leaders, and uh, and how um, when things go wrong, they look in the mirror and say, "What can I do about this?" And when things go right, they look out the window and say, "Look at all these great people I've got with me." Mm. You know, and that's 28,000 hours of research that backs up what you just said, yeah. right? And um, it, and it's magnetic anyways. Do you know what I mean? Like just as like <laughs> from a practical standpoint, it's actually really magnetic for people to want to work with you as the leader. Yeah. But, you know, um, you know, can I talk about hiring for a second? Yeah. Um, so hiring... <laughs> Is is not an easy thing, and one of the biggest, one of the uh, uh, you know, most important roles of a CEO is developing a team, creating, you know, finding a team, and that's such a difficult, um, you know, task to to uh, fulfill. And we've made mistakes here. You know, people might look at Python Drug as just like this, like everybody's just like linking arms, you know, skipping and just excited, and we're all kind of like. Changing the world, and and and, and but we have. I've always said to my staff, I've said uh, the biggest threat to fight the new drug is not uh, external um, reviews or feedback or or attacks. It's internal um, turmoil, and uh, you know that will crumble. That will crush an organization far quicker than any external force could. And so, really focusing on making sure that there is a healthy. Um, environment and atmosphere, and there were times where we didn't have that, where it was quite toxic, and we had to to take drastic measures into um, remedying that toxicity and that cancer, and uh, and and move on, and 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 taking those hard decisions and, and moving forward in that way has has proven to be very beneficial. And we're in a great place today, and we have an excellent staff, and we, and we all not only get along on a personal level, but all are on the same page and working together and synergizing and, and, and you know, uh, maximizing our efforts. Um, but again, you have, uh, in, the, in the alternative um, scenario, uh, it can not only uh, disrupt and stunt um, an organization, but it can really uh, eat, it, eat it from the inside out. Uh, well, I really identify with what you're saying. You know, I think about staff that you know, you talk about these toxic situations, right? And there's somebody that you know needs to get let go, 
But I personally hate firing people. Yeah. So I procrastinate. Yeah. It only makes things worse. It does. Like, I feel like, you know, after making the mistake multiple times in a row, we finally learned, hey, if you know they've got to go, like, don't draw it out. No. Make it happen. Well, I mean, Google uh, always, you know, in their book, uh, How Google Works, they talk about the fact that you need to um, hire slow and fire fast. Mm. And, and that's a principle that uh, I try to uh, emulate and adopt. It's not an easy one. Um, hire slow and fire fast. When you're hiring, sometimes you just need to fill a seat. You need someone to be fulfilling on X, Y, and Z. And you're like, well, this is the, the best I could find. Let's do it. You know, we, I've, been, uh, I've been trying to hire for a particular position for now uh, eight months and haven't filled it and have gone through several rounds of, of, you know, starting the process over just to find that right person. So hire slow and fire fast. If they are in any way toxic. But that feels counterintuitive because at the time, I just need somebody. A, I need somebody, and then when you want to fire someone, it's like, well, they have a family, or like, oh, but maybe, maybe it's me, maybe I'm the, the issue, maybe I need to be whatever, and, and, and whatever. And, and I'll tell you, as a, as, as a leader, whoever's listening to this, if you've got somebody in your organization that is a cancer, that is in any way manipulative, or is just not the right fit for whatever reason, fire fast. Get it over with, strip the Band-Aid off, and don't tell them, don't tell them, yeah. don't give them reasons um, be be uh, assertive and be direct and, and, and be um, honest. Honesty is the best policy. See, you know, as you say that, I'm just thinking like, you know, I've, I've had staff that were that were a decently good. They were like a good fit and they had the right raw materials, but maybe some of their insecurities were showing up and it was alienating their staff members and stuff. And we ended up we had the we had the one on one talks and I made it safe for that. You know, we had that kind of yeah. coaching mentoring talk to be able to make it safe for them to like call their own fouls and realize they need to make a change. Right. But then I think about the other people that we knew we need to let go. Like, like in your gut, you know, they're just not going to make it, but you, but I didn't get around to it. And like, am I really doing that person a favor No. to not let them get on to somewhere where they are a good fit? Like by prolonging the time it takes for them to get into the next career phase where they actually can excel. Am I doing this big favor to let them drag their feet here for this, for this time, you yeah. know? Yeah. Oh. And the reality is that absolutely not. You're, in fact, it's so, a lose-lose scenario in keeping them. Okay, so this culture you're talking about, right? You already talked about praising people. What What is other, like, how-tos that people listening to this can maybe up their game at work as a leader for, for that? Um, yeah, obviously, again, giving praise. Um, I think that creating a culture where the best idea wins and, and creating a culture where even the interns can be giving solid input into, uh, you know, big d- discussions, uh, company-wide discussions. So how do you, yeah, how, give me an example of making well, it safe for the intern to make suggestions. So what we do is we do a, a weekly meeting where we get together and we discuss what we're working on and we discuss things that are, you know, maybe um, things that are a, either concerning or big projects that we need to resolve or, or messages that we need to kind of figure out. And we discuss that as a company. And so that everything from the, uh, the intern to the office manager to the you know, chief creative officer, whatever it is, is, is sitting in that room and it's just uh, uh, you know at that point you check your title at the door the title doesn't enter into the door with you and we just talk and we, we allow the best idea to rise to the top and we execute on, the, on that idea and uh, and that has allowed the culture to be very um, the, the perceived culture to be very flat you know we, we're a flat organization we you know we're, there's not this some massive hierarchy of a chain of command that has to be acknowledged and recognized. Um, there are certain responsibilities and roles that are, you know, in, in individuals' 
kind of um, jurisdiction, but but that's kind of where it lands and ends. And so, um, so again, creating a culture where the best idea wins, creating a culture where you um, are, are uh, focused on what's right and rather than what's profitable. Um, you know, there's a book that just came out by Dale Partridge called uh, People Over Profits, um, which is talking about how actually the, the people over profits mentality is actually more profitable in the long run. And uh, so we really try to emulate that approach as well and, and taking a, and, and as a charity, we're actually, we, we have to do that. The fact that we have any focus on profits is probably unique to most nonprofits and uh, 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 in general, but uh, we actually operate our nonprofit, try to operate our nonprofit um, uh, like a for-profit to be able to self-generate, self-sustain our organization so that we can be better focused on the charity aspects of what we do. But anyway, uh, you know, yeah, uh, charitable giving, uh, best idea wins, and, uh, and, and, and giving praise to, to you know, talent and, and holding on to talent. And, and uh, anyway. That's great. Uh, before we wrap up here, um, any any other just general advice for the rest of us that are trying to create a movement, trying to create a business, trying to, you know, break the hurdle to the whole next, you know, break into the whole next league? Um, any just things that you feel like uh, are your guiding principles or advice you have? Yeah, I'd say that um, as I look at kind of my guiding principles in life and what has allowed me to achieve um, what I have achieved, um, I would say that uh, that one is vision. And, and luckily, the people that, that are listening to this often have vision for, for whatever they're trying to accomplish. They have a vision for a product or a business or an idea or a cause, and they have vision. But vision uh, isn't... Uh, if it ends there, you're not going to go anywhere with it. It's going to be this idea that that, uh, that just stays with you. So, so vision's important. Hard work is an incredible aspect of this. You know, a lot of people have good ideas, but without the execution, it's, it's nothing. Um, and then, you know, in addition to hard work, and this is one that, that not a lot of people uh, recognize, is persistence. Um, so many, I've seen so many solid ideas, good concepts with people with passion and vision chasing, but they're chasing for months, perhaps years, and they get tired, they get burnt out, and they say, well, I've got to go get a real job now, or I've got to go do X, or I can't chase this any longer, and they move on. And the, the, the linchpin to that whole equation was just persistence. Stick to it. Hold on. I, there was a thousand opportunities for me to let go of fighting drug well before you, have ever, you would have ever heard of us. Um, and and it, was, it was challenging. It was less profitable. It was, it was not easy. It was not convenient. It was an uphill battle. It was, it was controversial. It was all these things screaming um, in my ear kind of saying, you have an opportunity, you have a company here that's growing and excelling, stick to that or, or go back to that. So persistence and holding on to it and running forward. And the last one I mentioned earlier is, is a, a healthy dose of naivety. Um, I actually think that, that, again, I mentioned this, naivety is, is uh, again, a healthy dose of it, is, uh, is one of my greatest assets in life. I... In, in all of my entrepreneurial endeavors and ventures, I was um, naive to what kind of work it really would have or was going to take to execute or, or fulfill on that vision. I was naive in the industry and what was possible, what people would have told me was possible. But again, that allowed me to 
imagine and, and, and pursue and put a goal that was audacious and radical and crazy and, and beyond what was currently being accomplished and run toward it. And in many cases, by, putting, by, by being slightly naive, it allows you to pursue things that other um, less naive individuals would walk away from or put, put away and say is, uh, is impossible. Um, there's a great quote from the film uh, 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 Amazing Grace where William Wilberforce, one of my heroes that I didn't mention, but he's one of my absolute heroes on this planet and in the history of the world. Same with me. For people who don't know who he is. Yeah, William Wilberforce led the charge for the abolition of the slave trade um, uh, in, in Britain back, back years ago. 200 the, years ago. Yeah. And, uh, and his work, he, he, a, a great personal sacrifice, he was able to accomplish something over many years. Again, look at him. Vision, uh, you know, so he had vision, he had hard work, and he was persistent. Many people were on board with him but let go of it way before uh, he, he would actually accomplish it. And then he had a healthy dose of naivety to kind of say, like, we can do this. We can change the world. It takes naivety to kind of think that you can change the world. And it takes ambition. And people are doing it left and right with that healthy dose of, like, we can do it. It's never been done. I know, but we can do it. Okay. So oh, I, I forgot the quote. Sorry. So this, the, William okay. Woodforce, one of the quotes that, uh, that uh, in that film, in Amazing uh, Grace, the film, um, uh, uh, he was kind of saying, but, but nobody of our age has ever uh, ascended to that kind of power. And, and the quote... Uh, from the prime minister or the, the, the soon-to-be prime minister said, which is why we're too young to really realize that certain things are impossible. And it's kind of this like, like, don't let the realities crush our vision and dream. Hold on to those. Run after them. And, uh, and, and you'll, you'll succeed in ways that you could not have imagined or dreamed. But, but embrace it. Don't, don't think that that's a flaw. Embrace it and run with it. You know, I'm so glad you brought him up as an example, right? The guy spends 20 years against the biggest corporations in the world at the time to get slavery made illegal. 20 years he put that bill forward in a row. He got shot down 19 years in a row. He, he was ostracized right? by his colleagues. He right? was kind of alienated. Then he takes him another 20 years to get the, the slaves freed. Dude sticks it there for 40 years. Yeah. Right? He dedicated his life to it. And then, But look at the way it paved the way for the Abraham Lincolns and everybody else. Yeah. In, in the following years, right? We and know the name William Wilberforce and his colleagues. I couldn't tell you one of them. Like, again, it's, it's that, 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 that vision and ambition to, to accomplish something big and great that uh, allow people to, to, to exceed expectations. But you want reasons to think it's not going to work? Slavery's been around since the Bible. How are you going to change something that's been around however many thousands of years? You know what I mean? Like... All- Which is why I love the guy because I, I I apply it to what we're doing. Like the 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 national kind of narrative around pornography is it's fine, it's cool, it's normal, it's it's okay, and and sexual exploitation is just kind of a part of. But but we're trying to change that, and and you know people think we're crazy, and, and we, we are crazy. We, yeah, we are crazy, right? And I again I embrace that. Awesome. Hey, thanks for being on the show. This Thank is great. You. We're gonna have to have you back. Yeah. I, Hope, hope you understood uh, at least a fraction of what I said. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. 
And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash child rescue. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara, cold-cut combo, veggie delight, or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.